calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit slash nocturnal. Chapter 43 A Visit from Chinatown The sound of rattling machinery and chains dragging across stone brought Aggie out of a cold sleep. He had to move. He fought nausea and disorientation as he crawled toward the white wall. He didn't make it in time before the chain drew tight, yanking on his neck and dragging him across the floor. He got his feet under him just in time to stand and turn his back to the flange. The collar clanged home. The white door opened, and this time it wasn't the little old babushka lady. Five white-hooded, white-robed monster men came through. The last two carried a long pole from which hung an unconscious man tied to it by his wrists and ankles. He looked like one of those old guys from Chinatown. Sun-wrinkled face, black hair flecked with strands of gray, red flannel shirt over a faded Super Bowl XXI shirt, blue jeans and well-worn brown work boots. Like Aggie and the Mexicans, the man had a metal collar around his neck. Aggie stared at the monster men. He squeezed his eyes shut, then opened them again. He'd been high as fuck last time. He wasn't high now. Those weren't monster faces. They were rubber Halloween masks. A pig and a wolf, like before. But now he saw the goblin was one of those green-faced things that guarded Jabba the Hutt in Return of the Jedi. There was also a hellboy with the red skin and stubby horns, and a white-faced, black-whiskered Hello Kitty. The robed men wasted no time. Hellboy had that remote control thing and used it to get some slack from a chain to Aggie's right. Pigface and Hello Kitty untied the man's wrists, hooked the chain to the man's collar, then left him lying on the floor. He lay there unmoving. The masked men turned and walked toward the Mexican couple, who had been pulled to their respective places along the wall. Devuelva me a mi hijo, said the Mexican man, his tone a plea thick with despair. Adios le pido. The robed men said nothing. Their monster masks showed no emotion. They ignored the Mexican man. Instead, they closed in on his wife. Five sets of black-gloved hands reached for her, grabbing at arms and feet. She screamed. No! The man shouted. Dejela en paz! She tried to fight, but she had no chance. 
his wife. Aggie remembered his own wife. Remembered the gunshot. The blood. The Mexican man's voice betrayed shredding vocal cords. Chinga tu madre! Spit flew from his mouth. His eyes blazed wide with murderous insanity. La mataré! La mataré! Hellboy hit a button on the remote control. The woman's chain went slack, just as it had with her son. The masked men dragged her to the ground, her body half-hidden by their white robes. Aggie stood there, helpless. He couldn't help her. All he could do was draw attention to himself. And if he did, they might take him instead. He stood as still as he could. The Mexican man's fingers clawed at his collar. He pulled, tried to slide his fingers inside the metal and leather. He lurched forward, choking himself. His eyes bulged from rage, from a lack of oxygen. The woman's bloodied hand shot up through the pile of white robes, clawing at air, reaching for her man. Hector! The Mexican man, Hector, could not help her. Hellboy pocketed the remote control. He picked up the wooden pole, then stuck the end of it into the pile of wiggling bodies and hooked the woman's collar. Like a trained work crew, the masked men quickly grabbed the pole and dragged her across the floor. Hector shouted a stuttering something that wasn't a word in any language. He lurched again and again, trying to pull at a collar that would not give. Threads of blood flew from his screaming mouth. Every vein on his face stood out in bas-relief. His wet lips pulled back in a sneer of helpless anguish. The white-robed men walked out of the jail cell door, dragging the woman out of sight. The cage door shut. The chains went slack. Chest heaving, a nonsensical roar rolling from his mouth, Hector ran forward at full speed. He made it ten steps, just past the shithole, before the chain snapped taut with an accompanying ring of metal. His feet shot out from under him, and he landed hard on his left side. Hector didn't try to get up. He started to cry. The woman's screams echoed, steadily growing fainter, fainter, until they faded away for good. Aggie slowly shook his head from side to side. This couldn't be happening. Couldn't be. But it was, and he was stone-cold sober. This was real. He was fucked. Totally fucked. Chapter 44 Coal for the Engine Pookie and Brian usually worked the wee hours of the morning, when most restaurants had closed for the night. Pinecrest Diner was open 24 hours a day. The place had become their go-to spot when they needed to sit and talk through a case. Pinecrest was a little touristy during the day, but at 2 or 3 in the morning, you could avoid the dozen people wearing... I Heart San Francisco, or Alcatraz Psycho Ward Outpatient shirts. Pookie hoped Black Mr. Burns had good info. They needed a break in this case, something awful. Ballpuller Boyd hadn't been able to track down Alex Panos or Isaac Moses. Both were still missing. Those boys were either already dead, their bodies waiting to be found, or they were in hiding. Pookie guessed the latter. And Brian... A couple of hours of downtime with his old man would do wonders. Mike Clouser had a way of making you forget about everything but Mike Clouser. Bottom line, Brian hadn't killed those boys. Now that Pookie believed in his partner's innocence, he needed Brian to stop moping and get back on his A-game. 
Pookie walked into the diner and saw black Mr. Burns sitting at a booth, a tablet computer in front of him. John's shoulders were up, his head was down. Even coming to a public place like this was hard for him. Once upon a time, John Smith had been a standout cop. Now he was afraid of his own shadow, and that was a genuine tragedy. The man had unwittingly provided his own comic relief, though. He wore a dark purple motorcycle jacket. A few other patrons were in the place. Three working-class guys sat in a booth, getting a carb-loaded head start on the day. A trio of hipsters sat on the diner's round stools, leaning on the black stone counter. The latest trendy after-hours spot, that you probably haven't heard about because it's so obscure, must have finally shut down, and these fellows wanted to finish off the night with a stack of pancakes. Pookie slid into the seat across from his old partner. What's up, Purple Rain? Huh? The jacket, Pookie said. You rode your hog here and you're wearing purple. Hello? John sighed. Ah, so a black man in a purple jacket has to look like Prince. Pookie nodded. Exactly. How's Apollonia and those crazy kids in the new power generation? Your minority on minority hate is a sad thing, John said. You're letting the white man pull your strings. Listen, I have some serious business to talk about. I found some odd stuff. Odd stuff? You know you can swear around me. I'm not going to tell the teacher. I'm family friendly. Some things never change. So what couldn't you tell me over the phone? I have to admit, in 15 years of police work, this is the first time someone has called me for a sneaky spy meeting. Except for your mom, of course. Yeah, she told me about that, John said. She said you had a small penis. Pookie shook his head. John tried to partake in witty repartee, but the guy was just such a flaming nerd. Try it with a little more slang next time, B&B. You can't put humor on a spreadsheet. John shrugged. Yeah, well, whatever. I got the info on that New York City case. Not much there. The killer targeted women in their 20s. He got four that they know of. Maybe more because he targeted working girls, usually ones that operated solo. That triangle circle symbol was at each crime scene. Seems he liked to eat their fingers. Delightful, Pookie said. What was his name? They never found out who he was, John said. Media called him the ladyfinger killer. Cute. Very. Anyway, when they found the fourth body, they also found the killer. He was just as dead as his victim. How did he die? Asphyxiated. His fingers had been cut off, and he choked on them. Poetic Justice So we have the symbols clearly associated with a serial killer in New York. Anywhere else? That's it, John said. No other cases before or since. Now here's the sneaky spy part. He leaned closer. Remember how I told you it looked like the files that included those symbols had been accidentally erased from the SFPD system? Pookie nodded. They weren't. Accidentally, I mean. Someone deleted info on purpose? You sure? Yeah, it was really methodical. That was a game-changer. The symbols had been intentionally removed from the system. It seemed Brian's strange dreams were a part of something much bigger. Impressive, B&B, &B, Pookie said. 
but I'm guessing you don't know who did the deleting or you would have told me already. John nodded. Unfortunately, you're right. I can't tell who did it. What little info I have came from old indexes, and those didn't log usernames. What's an index? It's like a computer map that points to different locations on storage drives. Sometimes, if you delete the files, the pointers to those files remain, and those pointers have certain information. Okay, so why didn't they also delete the pointers? John smiled and raised his eyebrows. Because they didn't know the pointers were there. Whoever deleted the files has high-level access, but they don't know shit about computers. The fact that the index files remain means they didn't even talk to the IT guys about it, and they sure as hell didn't hire some hacker. A hacker would have wiped out everything. So it's not a programmer, Pookie said. A cop did this? At least someone working in the department, yeah. Pookie thought back to the meeting in Zhao's office, to the way Zhao, Robertson, and Shero had stared at the symbol pictures. You mentioned high-level access, Pookie said. How many people in the department have that kind of access? John thought about that for a second. I'm not sure. I know a lot about the system, but I'm just a mid-level user. People like me wouldn't have the access privileges. We can count out the IT guys. They would have done it right. So, between administrators, their support staff, I'd guess 30 or 40. A waitress brought menus. Pookie ordered coffee. John just asked for water. The waitress walked away. Pookie grabbed a handful of sugar packets from a little bin at the back of the table and started stacking them into little piles. He couldn't exactly investigate 30 or 40 cops. John's work gave him some great info, but nothing he could act on. What about the Oscar Woody crime scene photos? Pookie said. Sammy Burzon took about a hundred shots of those symbols. Those are still in the system, right? John shook his head. Not anymore. They were deleted shortly after they were entered. I saw links to them in the index files, but the actual images are gone. Pookie flashed back to that blue tarp at the Father Paul Maloney scene, to Verdi being in such a hurry to get Pookie and Brian off that roof. Had that tarp been covering another blood symbol? Baldwin Metz had been there, the first time anyone had seen him outside of the morgue in going on five years. Then Metz had a heart attack. He wasn't available when Oscar died. Maybe that was the connection. Metz hadn't been there to run things, to stop Sammy and Jimmy from processing the Oscar Woody scene. Sammy and Jimmy had followed protocol and entered the photos of the symbols into the system. Then someone found out about the photos and deleted them. But Zhao had seen those photos. So had Sean Robertson and Captain Shero. Zhao would have also seen the photos from the Maloney murder. If there had been a blood symbol under that tarp, then Zhao knew the two cases were related. She'd have known there was a possible serial killer out there. Known and taken her two best guys off the case. She should have already formed a task force and moved on to assigning more resources Instead, she'd given it all to Rich Verdi. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth 
of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Don't look so glum, John, John said. I also brought you some good news. You can make my penis grow two inches in a week or less? John laughed, a soundless thing that made his bony shoulders bob up and down. Stop believing your spam emails. Remember that local request for information on the symbols? The one that was 29 years old? In the archives, I found these old database printouts. They were all in binders, the kind of thing that's been sitting around forgotten long enough that no one knows if they should throw them out or not, you know? I spent about 12 hours in a truly Herculean effort of page-by-page data hunting, and I found the name and address of the guy who made that request. He's still alive, working out of the same place he was then. He's a fortune teller in North Beach. A name and an address. God damn, an actual lead. John, that's amazing, Pookie said. You still got it, brother. John's smile faded. He looked out the window onto Mason Street. Still got it. I can barely leave my apartment, Pooks. I almost had a panic attack coming here to see you. I mean, it's still dark out, you know? Pookie didn't know. He could only imagine what it felt like to go from being a cop on the streets to, for lack of a better word, to cowering behind a desk and not being able to do anything to change it. You do what you can, Pookie said. He instantly felt like a dick for trying to put any kind of positive spin on it. John kept staring out the window. No amount of words was going to help. Let's eat, Pookie said. Had the chocolate chip pancakes here? I swear they are made of crack dipped in gold. Aren't you and the Terminator going to talk to the fortune teller? Priorities, Pookie said. Without coal, the choo-choo train just sits on the tracks. And I doubt a fortune teller is up at 6 a.m. What's this guy's name, anyway? The name on the FOI was Thomas Reed, but he goes by a different name for his fortune-telling crap. Which is? Mr. Biznaz. Interesting, Pookie said. Come on, order something. Hey, is it racist if I suggest you get fried chicken and waffles? Incredibly racist, John said. And it sounds delicious, I'll get that. They ordered. Pookie tore open one of his sugar packet piles and dumped the contents into his coffee. One more thing, Mr. Burns. Considering the deleted files, I think it goes without saying, but keep this to myself. Pookie nodded. I think things could get dangerous. John shrank in on himself a little, his head again lowering as his shoulders again rose up. I'm not stupid. We're digging up what someone wants to keep buried. If they find out, they might try to bury us, too. I know the risks. I may not be your partner anymore, but I still have your back. Pookie wished he could go back in time, to six years ago, to that night in the Tenderloin when he'd had the drop on Blake Johansson. Pookie could have taken Johansson out, but he'd hesitated. Because of that hesitation, John Smith wound up with a bullet in his belly, 
a bullet that took a great cop off the streets. Order up, B&B, Pookie said. Breakfast is on me. Chapter 45 Like Father, Like Son Brian sliced into the second kielbasa link. A little jet of fat shot out and landed on the back of his thumb. It was hot, but not enough to burn. He grabbed a slice of rye bread, dabbed up the fat with it, and shoved it into his mouth. Glad to see your manners haven't changed much, son. Brian smiled despite a mouthful of food. Considering his dad had a bottle of Bud Light in one hand, a Marlboro in the other, and was sitting at the table in a threadbare T-shirt, white boxers, and black socks, he wasn't exactly the poster boy for social protocol. Brian didn't care that his throbbing body and sour stomach told him this meal was coming up later. The food tasted amazing. It tasted like home. He scooped up a forkful of sauerkraut. Dad, when you write your book on etiquette, I'll be first in line to buy it. His dad laughed. That was what Brian needed. Some normalcy. Mike Clouser in a t-shirt and boxers, drinking beer and feeding Brian kielbasa and sauerkraut at 7 a.m., because that was the only thing Mike knew how to cook. When Brian had been a little kid, he'd sat with his father at this same chipped formica table. Breakfast with his dad was a giant step away from the insanity of psycho dreams, burning kids, and dealing with butchered bodies. So, my boy, want to tell me what's going on? You wound up pretty tight. I know the job is hard and all, but, well, you kind of look like shit. You feeling okay? Been a little sick, Brian said. He couldn't tell his father any of it. Mike wasn't a cop, and he just wouldn't understand. And some stuff at work is getting to me. Stuff I don't really want to talk about. Another kielbasa quarter went under the knife and into his mouth. Work, Mike said. Sure it's not girl troubles. Oh, man, were they going to go over this for the umpteenth time? Leave it alone, Dad. When are you bringing Robin over for dinner again? I'll order Chinese. You know damn well I moved out of her place. Mike Clouser waved the Marlboro holding hand in front of him as if his son had just cut a nasty fart. Son, I love you to death, but no way you can do better than that girl. Gee, thanks for the compliment. You're welcome. What am I supposed to do? She told me to move out. Why? Did you cheat on her? Brian tossed his fork and knife onto the plate. He wasn't going to talk about this, either. Why had she told him to move out? Because she'd wanted to hear the words, I love you, Robin, and Brian hadn't been able to say them. Son, I grew up with your mother. I asked her out in grade school, and she said no. I asked her out in junior high, and she said no. I asked her out in high school, and she said no. That's when I started calling her stubborn Starla Hutchin. Mike jabbed out his cigarette in an overfull ashtray, then slid his hand under his shirt to scratch his hairy belly. I bet she turned me down ten times at least, but I didn't care. I asked her to our senior prom, and she said yes. The rest is history. Brian nodded at his father's gut. How could she possibly resist the physical specimen I see before me? Mike laughed. <laughs> exactly, he said, then lit another smoke. Just remember, son, women are basically retarded. It's not their fault. 
is genetic. They have no idea what they want when Madison Avenue spins their little heads around. A more rousing endorsement of women's rights I've never heard. What can I say? You can listen to Dr. Phil or those stupid broads that tell women to be strong and be independent and all that crap. Or you can listen to a man who's been happily married for 40 years. 30, Dad. Mom's been gone 10 years now. Mike waved away another imaginary fart, then pointed to his chest. I'm still married, right here. She loved me like nobody's business. I know you're a skeptic, or whatever you godless heathens call yourselves these days, but when I kick off and leave this splendor behind, I know I'll be with her. Someday you will, too. She loved you so much. When Mike talked about his wife, that ever-present light in his eyes faded, dulled. It was hard to see him so sad. Her death had left a deep hole in the man. I miss her, too, Dad. Mike stared off for a few moments. Then the shit-eating grin returned. Robin reminds me of your mother. She's got that spark. One of those broads that laughs before she stops to think about if she should laugh or not, you know? Troubles with his love life weren't high on Brian's current list of priorities. The more he avoided Robin, the better. He felt like he was already dooming Pookie somehow. He didn't need to spread his poison to her. I know, Dad. Robin is great. But let it go. It's over. So what now? You going to find someone else? Brian sagged back in his chair. He wasn't going to find someone else because he didn't want to find someone else. If it couldn't work with Robin, it wasn't going to work with anyone. Mike leaned across the table. For just a second, Brian had a flashback to the look his dad gave him back in the day, when Brian came home from yet another fistfight. You're not hearing me, son. So she booted your ass to the curb. Get over it. Forget your pride. You only have so many days to spend with a woman like your Robin or my Starla. And no matter how many days you get, they aren't enough. So you're going to promise me right now that you'll start up with Robin again. Dad, I'm a grown... Mike slapped the table, making Brian jump. Don't dad me, boy. You're too focused on your work and what horrible work it is. You need something else in your life before this crap eats you alive. You promise me. Now. The look on his father's face made it clear they'd talk about this and nothing else until Brian conceded. Brian was dealing with a probable serial killer, psychic dreams of murder that made his dick hard, strange symbols drawn in human blood, and it was all he could do to coax his agony-filled body through the day. Yet despite these things, he still had room to feel guilty because his dad was mad at him. Maybe 35 years old wasn't really all that far from 13. Okay, Dad, I'll talk to her. Mike's face relaxed. He nodded. Fine. Now that I've won that battle, you want to tell me what's going on at work? No offense, son, but I know 24-hour hookers that look like they get more beauty rest than you. Brian picked up his fork. He stabbed a piece of kielbasa then absently moved it around the plate in a slow circle. Brian, I know I'm not a cop, but I can still listen. 
His father had always been able to read his mind a little bit. It was spooky. The stuff I'm seeing now, it's... Brian's voice trailed off. Maybe he couldn't tell his dad everything, at least not yet, but it would feel good to share some of this burden. It's pretty bad. I kind of have some thoughts. What kind of thoughts? Brian stopped his kielbasa circle, then reversed it the other way. Like that there are certain people that deserve to die. There are, Mike said. Fucking A right there are. This about that gangbanger you killed in the restaurant? Pookie called me about that, you know. You don't say. Don't go busting his chops about it, Mike said. If your partner didn't call me once a week, I wouldn't have any idea what was going on in your life. It's not like it would hurt you to pick up the phone once in a while. Who is this little Jewish grandmother before me, and where did she hide my manly man father? Fuck you, Mike said. Know how your mother is gone forever? I'm not that far behind her. You don't stop by enough. There was no smart-ass answer for that. Brian was lucky enough to have his father in the same city, yet he stopped by Mike's place maybe twice a month at most. Sorry, Brian said. I'll do better at that. But it's not about the gangbanger in the restaurant. This is something. Something else. Son, just remember that you're a clouser. I can't pretend I know what it's like to do what you do for a living. But at the end of the day, you're a good man. You walk a line so that fat slobs like me can live in all this splendor. You have to weigh these bad thoughts against all the good that you do. Understand? His father had no idea what he was talking about. And yet, in a misguided way, the words made sense. Yeah, Dad. I understand. Look, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Do you mind if we just talk about the Niners? Mike Clouser leaned back in his chair, tilted his head back and wrinkled his face like something had not only farted this time, but also crammed a turd nugget up his left nostril. The Niners! Good God, son, don't get me started. The next thirty minutes rolled by without one thought of bodies, dreams, symbols, or death, as Mike Clouser effortlessly solved all of the San Francisco 49ers' problems and guided them to Super Bowl glory the following season. Goddamn Pookie. He'd known just what Brian needed. Most of the time it sucked having a partner who thought he knew everything. But sometimes, sometimes it was fantastic. You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.